0: Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The title of our study this morning, if we were to give it a title, uh, it is The Baptism for the Dead. We're going, we're going to have a baptism today, but, uh, and we'll be talking about a baptism this morning, but the baptism we're talking about this morning is The Baptism for the Dead. Now that's a very strange title, but uh, it's actually from the Bible. And we want to look at the verse in the Bible that talks about the baptism for the dead. And hopefully in the course of our study today, we'll see what we can learn about this strange idea. 1 Corinthians 15 is where we want to turn. 1 Corinthians 15. And we will look at this verse here that is a puzzling verse, a strange verse, and usually a verse that is not Discussed very much, First Corinthians 15, and we will look at verse 29. First Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 29. And Paul here writing to the Corinthians, and he asks this question. In verse 29, he says, "Else what shall they do, which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead?" So that's what we're going to talk about today: the baptism for the dead. Now. Uh, I have never, ever heard a sermon about this verse. I don't know about you, Uh, but it's one of those verses that are puzzling. You know, you read the verse and you think, hmm, what's Paul talking about? We'll just keep reading and we'll go to the next verse. And usually that verse is skipped. And so we want to examine this verse a little bit today because, like I said, I've never heard about uh, an explanation for this verse, and I've been puzzled by this verse at times. I'd read it and I was puzzled. And, uh, you know, the Bible tells us that we are to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Isn't that right? And so as we look at this verse and we seek to understand its meaning, we also want to see how it applies for us today, if at all. What we can learn from it today and what practical implications uh, are in it for us today. And an example, a very good illustration of how this verse is is misunderstood. Gravely misunderstood by many many people is uh, the example of one group of, of uh, professed Christians the Mormons uh, The Mormons have a very interesting practice Where they will have a baptism service for the dead So what that means is someone will go and they will go into the water and they'll be baptized on the behalf of their dead uncle their dead auntie their dead great-grandfather or great-grandmother and so on and so forth and uh, the, the person can be baptized you know Uh, I don't think there is even a limit to how many times I can be baptized. So a person will be baptized 10, 20, even 30 times. And the idea is they are baptized for those people who died, not having necessarily accepted Jesus, to make some kind of a provision for them. And you might think that's a very strange practice. And you will go to them and say, "You, you know, why are you doing this? And so they will open their Bible, and they will take you to this verse, and they will say, well here it says the baptism for the dead. And so we are being baptized for the dead. Now is this what Paul meant? Obviously not. But what did he mean? And how can we learn from it? You know we look at this very bizarre practice that that's not biblical, it doesn't seem biblical at all, and it isn't. It's a misunderstanding of the verse. But what about the correct understanding? So that's the question we want to answer. What does it mean? And you'll find it interesting if if you do some homework on this verse and you go to some Bible commentators, and, uh, and you see what they have to say. It's really interesting because they, they will say something along the lines of you know, we're not sure what Paul's talking about. We think it's this or we think it's that or we think it's the other thing. And many times these explanations are conf- contradictory, they're conflicting and uh, they're not really, they don't do justice to the context and they're really patchy. You know, sometimes they'll try and find uh, the wor- one of the words there in the Greek and find some obscure meaning and try and, and reword this, the sentence to make it fit, but it doesn't fit. You know, it's really patchy and, and, you know, there's all kinds of explanations. I won't go through all the potential possible explanations, but it's interesting homework to do. But the majority, the great majority of the explanations are based on a misunderstanding of one word in this verse, a keyword. And you know what that keyword is? It's a word that we, think we, we, that we think we understand very plainly. It's the word baptism. Because when we say the word baptism, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Emerging. When we go into the water and are immersed, and make sure you're fully immersed, none of this sprinkling or you know put a few drops. That's what a baptism is, and that's correct. But we need to look at it biblically. You see, misunderstanding one word can cause big problems. We see that very clearly. Uh, in the Advent movement, if you remember, the Millerite movement, they had a very great disappointment. And their great disappointment was based primarily on a misunderstanding of one word. Remember what that word was? Sanctuary. sanctuary. They thought the sanctuary meant the earth and the cleansing of the sanctuary, therefore would mean Christ would come and cleanse the earth and from all sin. And therefore they concluded, logically that it's his second coming. But that logical conclusion was based on a misunderstanding of the word sanctuary. It was was after disappointment that it was like someone said, you know, this word sanctuary, who said it means the earth? And they went to the Bible and they studied it out and they actually discovered the truth about the heavenly sanctuary. And of course, there, there would have not been a disappointment had that been discovered earlier. So a misunderstanding, basically, the point is, a misunderstanding of one word can take you to very strange places and so in the same way here we find all these strange explanations and strange practices are based on a misunderstanding of this particular word in this case. So this is what I want to discover uh, discover today. We want to see what baptism is is Paul really talking about? Is he talking about water baptism? And if so, how does that fit? And we want to see all the different elements of the of the verse. So we'll ask a few questions. Question one is which baptism? Isn't that right? And question two is, based on the verse, it says there are a group of people who receive this baptism. So the next question is, who are baptized? Isn't that right? And what's a, there's another group of people that this group are baptized for. Isn't that right? It says they are baptized for the, the, dead. the dead. So that's the other question. Who are the... Dead, that they're being referred to here. And lastly, the last question we want to ask is the practical question for us is, what about us today? Once we answer these questions, it will help us to actually understand what Paul is meaning. That's all the main elements in the verse. Isn't that right? You're with me so far? If we identify the right answer to each of these questions, we will have understood what Paul is meaning and that will help us understand any application for us today. So this is what we want to do today. we do a little investigation, a little Bible study to answer these questions. Now first question, which baptism, you know, like I said, when we say the word baptism, we say, well that's water baptism of course. Why would we even ask which baptism? Let's have a look at Hebrews chapter 6 and this is where it starts getting a little bit interesting and where you need to think as we go through this together, Hebrews chapter 6. And we will look at verse 2. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 2. And here Paul is writing, and it says in verse 2 of the doctrine, speaking of the foundations of the Christian faith, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. So first thing he lists there is a doctrine, and he calls it the doctrine of baptisms. baptisms. It means there is Two. more than one. 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 Isn't that right? Baptisms. Is it says baptisms in your Bible? Yes. Yeah, more than one. So there's a little s there that makes a huge difference. Uh, well, what is this then? This, this helps us now think a little bit outside the the limits of water baptism. There is more than just one baptism. Now someone might say, and this is the verse that came to my mind, well doesn't Paul say in Ephesians there is one Lord and one faith and one? Baptism. Baptism. Here he says there's one baptism and here he says there's a doctrine of baptisms. Is this a conflict or is this a contradiction or what does it actually mean? Well actually we'll find that there are different kinds of baptisms but there's only one legitimate valid baptism in each kind. That's what he's talking about. Maybe it'll it'll explain itself as we go along a little bit. Let's go to Matthew 3 and we'll look there at some of the different baptisms that are listed. Now interestingly enough they're all listed here in one verse. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11. So that makes it very easy. There are many other verses that we could go to for all the different baptisms as Paul said But it's nice when they're all listed in one verse. Matthew chapter 3, and we will look here at verse 11. Matthew 3, verse 11. John the Baptist speaking. He says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. fire." We all know that verse, don't we? But whenever we talk about baptism, we generally just think of the first one mentioned. Isn't that right? So here we have a list. First of all, we have water. That's what we're all familiar with. Then we have? Holy Spirit. And what else? How many is that? That's that's three, right? Now, there are no other baptisms that we're aware of that are listed. So when Paul says the doctrine of baptisms... Here we have baptisms, and when he says there is one baptism, there is only one genuine, valid baptism of water. Isn't that right? Or not? There's a few, or one? Yeah. Only one. There's, there's not much answers this morning. Are you awake? Okay, we're getting tired. Uh, before we start, there's only one valid, legitimate baptism of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that right? Yeah. yeah, and one valid baptism of the baptism of fire as well. That's what he's talking about when he says there's one baptism. So, one baptism of each kind. Now I want to explore that a little bit because it's a simple question, which one of these three was Paul referring to in 1 Corinthians 15? In our mystery text that we started with. And uh, to help us find the answer, let's go to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. I want to understand what what the different ones mean. That will help us as well. Luke chapter 12. And Jesus here speaking in Luke chapter 12 and verses twenty, uh, sorry, 49 and 50. Luke 12, verse 49 and 50. And it says here, I am come to send fire on the earth. And what will I if it be already kindled? But I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how am I straightened till it be accomplished? Interesting verse, isn't that right? Now I want you to think a little bit what Jesus said here. He says, you know, I've come to send fire. And if you compare the parallel verse in, uh, in Matthew, you say, uh, he says, I am come to uh, send a sword or right? to bring a sword. Now uh, he says in verse 50 that he has a baptism to be baptized with. That's future. Isn't that right? Now, I want you to think in the timeline of Christ's life, when he said those words, had he already received the water baptism from John? So he's not referring to that. Had he already received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Yes. So there is still another baptism that he says he needs to be baptized with. And the only option that is left is? Fire. Well, what, does, what does fire represent? What does fire refer to? Fire refers to cleansing, that's very true, and cleansing that occurs by. Su- oh, well, spelling is not well this morning, okay? Cleansing by suffering or trial or persecution or whatever you might to whatever word that's synonymous there. So Christ was speaking about something that would still happen in the future that he refers to as a baptism. It has to do with fire, while he had already received the water baptism and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So this is what the fire really represents. Fire is a fire of cleansing. Cleansing from? Sin, isn't that right? That's what we were just talking about earlier. That's what we need cleansing from. Did Christ need cleansing from sin? No. But as the scripture says, uh, he learned obedience through suffering, the things that he suffered. So we're going to look at that a little bit. Let's go to Matthew 20 and explore this aspect just a little more. Matthew chapter 20. And then hopefully the pieces will start falling in place. Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. We have a story where... The two brothers come to Jesus with a request. Verses 20 down to 23. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit the one on the right hand and the other on thy left in thy kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what he asked. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say unto him, We are able. And he saith unto them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand, and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them of, for whom it is prepared of my father. So here's John and his brother. They come and they bring their mother to intercede for them and to strengthen their case. And they want high positions in the kingdom. And then Christ gives the answer that they need to be able to drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism. And of course, they wanted it so bad, they didn't mind what the cost was. They didn't even understand what he said. They said, yes, whatever it takes, Lord, we will do it. And Jesus said, you will indeed drink of the cup and be baptized with the baptism. But to sit on my right and on my left, the father that's the Father's business, that's the Father's prerogative. Interesting here, Christ links two things together. He links this baptism that he said he's going to be baptized with, and he links it with the drinking of a cup. Doesn't he? Isn't that right? And then he says that this baptism and this drinking of the cup is something that his disciples will also experience. Not only he himself, but he will experience it first. Well... What is Christ talking about? Where do we read about Christ? Drinking of a cup. Because that's where he is baptized with this baptism that he's talking about. You remember? In the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane, He said, Father, you know, if 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 you're willing, please let this cup pass from me. That drinking of the cup was the time when he was baptized with the baptism of suffering and intense trial and anguish. And then he said to his disciples that you will be baptized with a similar baptism like me and you will drink a similar cup like me. So the cup of, the cup of suffering or the baptism of suffering is very, very clear in the scriptures. Our Lord and Savior experienced that. He experienced all three. And, and generally speaking, in our experience as Christians, we will go through all these different baptisms and generally in that order as well. Now, uh, we're going to look at that a little bit, but before we do, we need to answer this question. Which baptism was Paul referring to out of the three? Because we examined what the Bible says about all the different baptisms, all three. The water baptism. Can you be baptized with the water baptism on the behalf of someone else? Because the Bible says, what shall they do that are baptized for the dead? And for their means on the behalf of. Can you be baptized with the water baptism for someone else or on the behalf of someone else? How do we know that? Because the Mormons do it, and that's so weird, we shouldn't do it. So it's obviously wrong. (laughs) No. Water baptism, what does it signify? Jesus said, go and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized, the same shall be saved. So baptism is an indication of a personal belief. Individual personal belief. You can't believe on the behalf of someone else. You can't be baptized with water on the behalf of someone else. So that means... This is not the baptism that Paul was talking about. Isn't that right? What about baptism of the Holy Spirit? Can you be baptized with the baptism of the Holy Spirit for someone else or on behalf of someone else? No, No, same story. That happens as a result of your personal belief and you receive the Holy Spirit. You can't receive the Holy Spirit on behalf of someone else. We might wish we could, but we can't because it comes as a result of your personal exercise of faith. That's how you receive the Spirit. And so, in like manner, the Holy Spirit is not the baptism that Paul was talking about. So that leaves us only with one option. Can you receive the baptism of suffering and trial on the behalf of someone else, or for someone else? Yes. right, dude. Okay, we have this. Christ did, Christ did all that for, because Christ was our Savior. He did everything on the behalf of us. But we're not, we, there are things that Christ did that we're not required to do and we cannot do in his capacity as Savior that he did. So we need to keep that in mind. But can you receive this baptism on the behalf of someone else? You can't physically, but you can spiritually. Okay, that, that's an interesting answer. Let's have a look at Colossians 1. Let's find a Bible answer. Because usually when we ask this question, we have a few yeses and a few noes and a few not sure. Let's see what the speaker says next. Colossians 1 24. We'll see what the Bible says. Colossians chapter 1 verse 24. Colossians chapter 1 verse 24. Paul says, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you. And fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. So what's the answer? Yes. Yes, a certain definite yes. Paul says he experienced suffering and trial on the behalf of the church or for the church. Now, will we as Christians experience suffering? Yes. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus. Will suffer persecution. That causes suffering, doesn't it? That's a baptism that every believer will receive to a greater or lesser degree. There are so many Bible verses about suffering. You know, Jesus did not uh, paint a false picture for us when he told us about the journey Mm -hmm. and the walk. He said there will be suffering. Paul says uh, we we are partakers of his suffering. suffering. Uh, We're also told that... uh, there are so, so many verses. Uh, if we partake of his uh, sufferings, we shall also partake of his glory. And uh, Paul says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment works for us, a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. There is affliction, there is suffering, there is trial. Uh, elsewhere, Paul says, uh, for it, it is given for you not only to believe on Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. So there's suffering. There is going to be suffering. There is going to be trial and actually the experience of Christ in Gethsemane was a type or an example that his disciples will also experience and go through. That's what he told James and John, isn't that right? He said, you will drink of the cup, you will be baptized with the baptism. Now that's something to keep in mind because this helps us understand what Paul was referring to a little bit at a time. And Christ's experience in Gethsemane Represents the experience that his disciples will go through, through an intense anguish and an intense suffering. And what's the time of the greatest trial and suffering on this earth? It's the time of tribulation, the time of trouble, the time that the scripture calls the time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation. So, in other words, Christ's experience represents. Particularly the experience that his people will go through when they go through the time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. That will be the baptism of suffering for them. That's when they will drink of the cup and they will be baptized with the baptism. Uh, But anyway, before we go on, so we've answered this question, isn't that right? Okay, you're happy with that answer? If if you're not happy, we can talk about it after. I'll be more than happy to discuss a bit further. But we'll just press on. That's what we're finding so far. We just did a process of of elimination to find the answer. So our next question is, which group are baptized? We kind of alluded to it already. Because Christ's uh, Christ's experience, as we said, is a type. It's an example. It's something that will happen to his people. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. And see how this is spelled out a little clearer. Hebrews chapter eleven. And of course, Hebrews eleven is the chapter of faith. Wouldn't you like your name in Hebrews eleven? And we have the names of all these heroes of faith in the in the in the Hebrew, in the chapter Hebrews chapter eleven. Uh, so the question here is who. Now let's look at the last few verses there, verse 39 and 40, last two verses, speaking about the heroes of faith. This is Paul's conclusion of his argument, this is the summary. He says, and these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made... Perfect. Now, have you ever pondered that verse? It's a very anti-climax to what you would expect from the chapter. It is actually the climax, but it's a different one than we would expect, because Paul talks there about Abel and about uh, Enoch and about uh, Jacob and Moses and Abraham and all these heroes of faith, many in the list. And he says through faith they did this and through faith they did that and they accomplished this and they put you know, to flight the, the armies of the enemy and they conquered the sword and the fire and all these great achievements through faith. And their whole purpose and their whole mission was all the while in faith they confessed that they were pilgrims and strangers on the earth and they were looking for a promise. And what was the promise? The city that God built. And that city of course is eternal life. That's what it represents. Where you will be in the promised kingdom and have eternal life. That was their hope, that was their faith, their focus. And then he comes to the end of the chapter and he says, but you know what? They did all these great things, they obtained a good report through faith, but they did not receive the promise. And then he gives us the reason. What's the reason? Because they, without us, should not be made perfect. Now who is the us that Paul is referring to here? It's those who are alive reading it, right? Because all the others are dead. Paul is referring here in particular to the last group of people through whom the reception of the promise can be given to all these faithful. You see, in other words, Moses, Moses is in heaven right now, but the fullness of the promise is not realized even for him. You know, the city is pretty empty. He's walking alone there. The city is to be inhabited by people. It's God wants his whole people to receive the promise. So these people, these faithful people like Daniel, like Joseph, like Joshua... They have not yet received the promise. Their reception of the promise is dependent on the us. And without us, they cannot be made... Perfect. There is a connection here. There's a very important connection that we want to explore a little bit more. You see, this group of people that Paul has in mind here is a group of people that can bring about the reception of the promise for all the saints of all time. Not just for themselves. That's why he says, they without us should not be made perfect. You see, all the saints, all the faithful of all ages are waiting. They're dead in the grave. I know they're not aware of the passage of time, but they're waiting. You know, uh, you think God is happy that Abraham is in the grave waiting? Or David is in the grave? Or, Or Joseph? Or Daniel? You know, God's plan and purpose for them to enjoy the blessing, but they cannot receive the promise. They without us are not made perfect. So what are they waiting for? What is the hold up. What are they waiting for? Romans chapter 8 gives us the answer. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 19. Paul, the same author, expresses this waiting for something a little clearer. Romans chapter 8 and verse 19. Romans 8, 19. Paul says, for the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now, I read that verse many times before, but, you know, sometimes a verse will stand out when you read it more than other times. And the interesting thing here, what this verse really portrays, you know, I love the language, I just want to paint it in in a, in a little bit more colorful light. When he says here, the earnest expectation, what does that mean? The longing and earnest desire and great, you know, uh, wanting of something. He says they are waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now he says, who is waiting? He says the creature. You know what the creature there means? It means all creation. Everything. Everything and everyone are longing and earnestly desiring with great expectation. They are longing for one thing. What's the one thing? Manifestation of the Sons of God. Manifestation of the Sons of God. You know, Seventh-day Adventists, if you were to ask that question, say they're longing for the Second Coming. And the Second Coming is a great and wonderful event. But you know what? The Second Coming cannot happen before the manifestation of the Sons of God. That is needed. Why? Because Paul in Hebrews says, They without us should not be made perfect. What's the manifestation of the Sons of God? Doesn't the Bible say that when we believe, we become sons of God? We're all sons of God here, sons and daughters of God. But what's the manifestation of the Sons of God? You see, brothers and sisters, there is something else. There is something above and beyond. There is an experience and a testimony that we need to give that we have not yet given. That's called the manifestation. What's a manifestation? Something that is? Revealed. Seen, isn't that right? Something that is revealed. Now, how, do you think, how many people do you think in the world know that we have a meeting up here in Wenatchee today? Hardly anyone. You see, God is saying that He is longing earnestly, all of creation, everyone's actually longing for the manifestation or the revelation of the sons of God when they will be seen. And they will arrest the attention, not only of the world, but of everyone else. You see, this is the full realization of the Gospel claim that God will have a people on the earth who will fully reflect the character of Christ. And that will be as a testimony to all nations And then the verse says, then the end comes. Isn't that right? The gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world for a witness. A witness is something that you behold, that you see. And so everything is waiting longingly for the manifestation of the sons of God. Because when the sons of God are manifest, then Christ can come. And then all these faithful of all the ages can receive the promise. But I want to tell you something. The manifestation of the sons of God, in order for that to happen, the sons of God need... To go through this baptism that will completely cleanse away any earthliness that is left. That is why there is that baptism. You see, God is not inflicting suffering upon His people just randomly like that. There is a purpose. And its purpose is just like with Christ. It intensified His faith. And He went through that experience as a type, to be our Savior and as a type for us as well. You see... Experience this time of trouble is needed for God's people. The type for that is also in the story of of Babylon. You remember three Hebrew boys in Babylon who did not bow to the image. You know, do you remember their names? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yeah, that's their pagan names. What about their Hebrew names? Remember their Hebrew names? Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Okay, that's their Hebrew names. It's interesting because Babylon changed their names. As a change, there was an indication of the change of the gods. Anyway, that's the subject of another sermon. But these three Hebrew boys, they were thrown into the? Into the fire. And when they were thrown into the fire, the fire burned only? The cords, the ropes that bound them. It didn't burn anything else. But when they came out of the fire, the entire attention of everyone was focused on? Them. It was as a manifestation of those who stood faithfully to the God of Israel. And it was the fire that brought that about. And the fire was, it was a test for them. In the same way, that's the type for God's people in the last days. They will go through a fiery trial. They will go through a test period that will actually bring out the character of Christ fully in them. And will be as a manifestation of the sons of God. Let's look at verse 23. Same, same thought is portrayed just a couple of verses later. This expectation. Verse 23 says, And not only they... But ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. What's Paul referring to here? What's the redemption of the body? Immortality. Immortality, when this corruptible shall put on incorruption. He says we're longing for that, point, and we're groaning in ourselves, even though we have the first fruits of the Spirit, we're waiting for that. And that event cannot take place without the manifestation of the sons of God. They without us should not be made perfect. So we have here a very serious circumstance. The experience of God's people in the last days unlocks many other events that cannot happen before they go through this experience. And we are living in the last days, aren't we, brothers and sisters? I don't need to ask for a show of hands. We believe earnestly that we are living in the last days. We see the signs all around us. And that's why we need to understand what is in store for us and what is dependent on us. You see that the faithful of all ages are waiting for us. They, without us, cannot be made perfect. Look at verse 35 and 36. Same, same chapter. Notice the challenge here. You see Romans 8 is an end time chapter. Verse 35 and 36. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Now the answer is no. But notice all these things will happen to challenge our love for God. And Paul says, we need to have an experience that will hold through all of that. Because all of that, you know, all that challenge, when you come come victorious through a test, it actually seals you. And that's what that trial and suffering does. Notice the next verse. It says, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. How can you be killed all the day long? That's not literal, that's accounted for death. In other words, you are going through an experience that is like death, that is so hard and so trying, it is like death, all the day long. And then he says, we come forth from that victorious because we have the love of Christ in us. There is that connection. God's people will go through an experience of trial and suffering and persecution and peril and nakedness and sword. It's called suffering. But don't worry, you don't go through that alone. That's you know, not something to look forward to, oh no, suffering, I hope I die before that time. You know, some people say, think about the time of trouble, and they get so troubled thinking about the time of trouble. And they say, no, I, I, wish, I wish the Lord would lay me to rest before that time, because I don't think I'm going to make it in that time. Well, you certainly won't. You need Christ in order to make it. And Christ, who accomplished that and was victorious, will be also victorious in His people. So we don't need to fear that, but we need to be intelligent as to what's coming. We need to know what to expect. So there are very, very many parallels between Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane and the last experience of God's people. Christ was forsaken by friends in the Garden. Isn't that right? He he was going through intense mental anguish and trial. His faith was being tested and he had to pray earnestly. And he came forth as a victor. That's the same thing that will happen in the last days. Uh, God's people will be betrayed even by their own friends, by their own brethren. They will go through an intense anguish and trial, intense suffering. Their faith will be tested, but they will be praying earnestly, and they will come forth victors. So there are very significant parallels. So the last generation will vindicate God's claims. They are the answer in in the argument in this great controversy. They're the final answer that God has. And uh, so that answers for us, the next question, isn't that right? No one knows. Isn't that right? last generation. They're the ones who are baptized with the baptism of of suffering, or of fire. So the next question we need to ask is, who are the dead? Because that's who they are baptized for, or that's who they are baptized on the behalf of. Now we already alluded to that because you know it's all connected so let's just look at it a little bit closer because As we saw in Hebrews 11, the list there is of all these people that died in faith, that died believing. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15 again and just see how that, (coughs) how that fits into the picture, 1 Corinthians 15. and 1 Corinthians 15, that's the chapter, that's where we started. The context of the chapter, particularly that passage, Paul is dealing with the resurrection. The word resurrection is mentioned there about 24 times. That's what he's dealing with. That's what the whole argument is. And that's the climax of the argument there is in verse 29 when he asks this question. Uh, He introduces that part in verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Notice verse 12. That's the theme of what he's dealing with when he's talking about the baptism for the dead. Verse 12 says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead... How say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? And then he goes on to the argument that there is definitely going to be a resurrection of the dead. So in other words, there were people there who were teaching that there is no resurrection from the dead. And Paul is saying, what's this nonsense that you're falling for? How is it that some of you are teaching there is no resurrection from the dead? Now, who are those people that are promised a resurrection from the dead because Christ rose? All those, All those who died in Christ, isn't that right? Now everybody will rise, we know that, but not everybody will rise to eternal life. Only those who have died believing, who died in Christ, they will rise to eternal life. They're the ones who are promised a resurrection. That's why Paul says we have hope. Otherwise, if we didn't have a resurrection, we would be the most miserable people in the world. There will be no hope for us, but there is a hope, and the hope is that there is life beyond the grave. Now that life beyond the grave is for God's faithful people, and we see a list of these people, a list of the names of these people in Hebrews 11. All these people are among those who have died in the faith, waiting for the reception of the promise. And the reception of the promise requires them to be alive, not dead. They can't receive the promise dead. And so there is a need for a resurrection before they can receive the promise. And so this is really what Paul's referring to when he talks about the dead. They are baptized for the dead or on the behalf of the dead who died believing in the promise who have not yet received it and so there's no one name that's all the faithful of all ages they are the ones who are the dead now i want to see the connection here because the body or the church of christ is not only the group of people who are alive today the body of christ is made up of all the faithful of all ages dead and alive And as the body is one, we need to recognize and look at ourselves as one with all these people, with all these brethren. And just as when one member of the body suffers, the entire body suffers, isn't that right? And when one member of the body is honored, the entire body is honored. And that's why the body as a whole cannot receive the promise until the last group receives the promise by going through the trial of suffering. And when they... Experience that, then the whole body can receive the promise collectively, because God doesn't take the church to heaven in groups. The church goes in whole. Now there are special cases, I realize, and we might talk about that a little bit, where some individuals are already there, but the body is not there. These people are there as, as a sample of what is to come, as an assurance and a testimony that the rest will follow, but the rest is not there yet. David is still in his grave, isn't that right? And God loves David. He's a man after God's own heart. God is not happy about that. What is keeping David in the grave? Is that this has not happened yet. This baptism of suffering for the very last generation. And so the final generation will go through a baptism of suffering for all the body of Christ, of all ages. And when they are honored, as the Hebrew boys were honored when they came through that fire, When they are honored, the whole body is honored. You with me so far? You haven't lost anyone? Okay, let's look at verse 29 again. We're not too far. And we will read it now with these answers that we have found. We will insert them into the verse so we can understand it a little better, hopefully. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 29. Let's just read this verse again. And this is what it says. Verse 29, else what shall they do which are baptized with the baptism of suffering for the dead righteous? If the righteous dead rise not at all, why are they, that's the last generation, then baptized with the baptism of suffering for the righteous dead? Did you catch it? That's a very different meaning to what we might have thought. But it's consistent with the argument of Paul. He is dealing with the resurrection. In essence, he's saying, listen, there is a resurrection. What are you talking about when people are saying there's no resurrection? What about this last generation? And they go through all this suffering and trial. When they go through this baptism for all those who died. Why in the world are they going through this intense suffering experience if all the dead will not rise? What's the point of it? That's what he's saying. In other words, there is great importance placed on the experience of the last generation going through that baptism of suffering. All the righteous of all the ages are waiting longingly and earnestly expecting that manifestation in order for them to receive the promise. Now we might have not thought about it that way before. That Daniel is waiting in his grave to receive the promise and his waiting is not because God is taking his time it's because God's people have not yet gone through this experience. God's last generation people. You see there's something interesting as we look to Christ because he's the type for us in Hebrews chapter 12 Christ was the type for this particular experience Hebrews chapter 12 we're almost there Hebrews chapter 12, after speaking about the heroes of faith and the chapter of faith that we looked at in, in, uh, in chapter 11, chapter 12 gives us an argument based on all that he said in chapter 11, it says, wherefore, verse 1, right, wherefore, what's that mean, therefore, based on what I've been telling you, what's therefore, verse, verse 1, Chapter 12, verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. So he's encouraging the us that he finished off with in, verse, in chapter 11, right? He says, they without us should not be made perfect. Now he says, okay, here is some encouragement for you. We have so great a cloud of witnesses. We have all these people who are great in faith to urge us on. Let us run this race with patience. Now, you run a race in order to, to win, to finish it, right? You know, sometimes even if you don't win, but if you finish the race, you know, there's, there's some honor in that. And you know, some people are coming last in the race and they run, and run, but they must cross that finish line. If they don't, it's like a big failure. Even though they're not first and they might be last. You know, everybody's gone home and just a few people left, but they, crossing the finish line is important. So the purpose of running the race is to get to the end, is to finish the race. And then in, ur- in order to urge us on, actually before we go on, there's, there's something here. What is the biggest hindrance in our running of this race? According to this verse. It says, let us lay aside every, every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. There is one sin. That so easily besets us. That Paul says, "Listen, let us run. Let's lay aside this one sin that so easily besets us." What is this one sin? You ever wondered? What is the one sin that he is talking about here? That he says so easily besets us. So, unbelief, unbelief, unbelief. Right? Okay, there's a few answers. That's good. This is some right answers. It's very true. It is unbelief. You know why it's unbelief? Because notice what he finished telling us in chapter eleven this person by faith, 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 all through the chapter. And then he says, let us lay aside the sin that easily besets us. So what is it? It is the lack of faith. faith. It's unbelief. That's the sin that does so easily beset us. So he's encouraging our faith. And as we're told, you know, the more you talk faith, the more faith you will have. So Paul is talking to us Faith, all through chapter 11, to encourage our faith. And it says, okay, I've encouraged you with all this faith, all these faithful people, lay aside that sin that easily besets, and run with patience or with endurance the race that is set before. Verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's how we run the race. You want to finish the race? Look at someone who has. Keep your eyes on someone who has. That's what he's saying. That's how you successfully run the race. And in order for God's people, the last generation, to successfully run the race to the end, including this part, they need to look to Jesus and see how he successfully finished the race. Now, Jesus had difficulty in finishing the race, didn't he? He endured great suffering and trial, as it says in the next verse. But it says he endured the cross for a reason. What caused him to endure the cross? It says in the verse, for the joy that was set before him, it enabled him to endure the cross. And when it talks about the cross here, it's not just the moment that he was crucified, that last experience of intense suffering and trial that began in the garden and culminated in the cross. That's what he's talking about. Christ was able to endure that. Christ was able to finish that part of the race successfully because of one thing. He's the author and finisher of our faith, but there was one thing that encouraged him. And it says here, it was the joy that was set before him. What was the joy that was said before him? Because that's how we can finish the race, isn't that right? What was the joy that was said before him? said at, right at the right hand of the Father, souls will be saved. Okay, uh, if you remember in the Zaref Ages, there's a, uh, in the part that deals with when Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember he was on the, on the ground praying earnestly, and he, he was struggling, and then uh, the Father does something, he sends him an angel, isn't that right? He sends him an angel to encourage him and to strengthen him, not to take away from him the trial, but to encourage him. And how the angel encourages him, I love the language, because it says the angel lifts him off of the ground and puts his head on, on on his breast, and he points him up, and it's like Christ sees a vision of what would come. And what does he see? He sees the souls of all those who will be saved eternally secure because of what he would go through. And that joy that is set before him is the encouragement. He says, oh yes, it's like, he lost, it's like he lost sight of it because of all the intense attacks of the enemy and the trials and the temptations. It was all dark. Actually, we're told that it was so dark he could not see through the portals of the tomb. He could not see himself coming forth as a, as a victorious uh, conqueror because it was so intense. And then through that, he sees this glimpse of joy that is set before him. And it's like, yes, of course, eternal salvation for all these souls. And He determines that He will go through with with it at whatever cost. Isn't that right? That was the joy that was said before Him. You know what? It's the same for God's last generation as well. They will endure because of the joy that is said before them. You know what the joy that is said before them is? souls Souls saved. Souls receiving the promise that they are waiting and longing to receive, that they have not received yet. They will see Daniel and Abraham and Elijah, Elisha and Joshua and all these faithful souls finally receiving the promise. They're not there yet, isn't that right? They've not received the promise. They can only receive the promise when that takes place. So going through the time of trouble is not just about how our faith will stand. It's not just about how we have shown that we have a good character. It's not even just about showing that Christ was right. The claims of Christ are realized in the fact that people receive his promise. That's the evidence for the claims of the gospel. And the vindication of all that takes place when God's people go through that experience on the behalf of those who have died in the faith. So brothers and sisters, Daniel is waiting for you and me. And... Joshua and whoever you, Joseph, whoever your Bible hero is, he is waiting for you and me. The body cannot be complete with a part missing. They, without us, cannot be made perfect. So that's the question, you know. And many times we go through suffering and trial today, and we wonder why these things happen to us. And, uh, you know, there's suffering and trial that we bring upon ourselves. Uh, That doesn't count very well. You know, Peter says, if you suffer for evil doing, what glory is it? There's no glory in that, isn't that right? But if you suffer, when you have done nothing wrong, if you suffer for right right doing, like Christ, then there is indeed glory. That's the suffering that the Bible talks about. And if you might be going through suffering, through trial, uh, look at it as preparation for what's coming. You know, sometimes we go through suffering... And we wonder why this is happening. There is no reason that we can think of why this and this happened to us. And we have no explanation perhaps. And one day the Lord will explain all these things to us. But remember, suffering is a Christian discipline. Not self-inflicted suffering. But sufferings and trials are a Christian discipline. You want to be a Christian? That's good and easy. You want to be a mature Christian? It requires suffering. There's no way around that. That's what actually brings the fruit to... Maturity. That's what brings the fruit, uh, to, the fruit to a ripe stage. So that's why uh, Peter says, don't think it a strange thing concerning the fiery trial that is trying. Don't, don't wonder and, and think, well, Lord, what's going on here? I thought you were on my side. The suffering, the purpose of the suffering is to mature the Christian character. And so if you're not suffering, uh, you need to seek the Lord not to inflict suffering upon you, but you need to be prepared for what is coming. And if, you are, if you are suffering, take that as preparation for what is to come in the very very near future. All those who live in godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I want to read a, a little poem that really illustrates that particular aspect very well, just quickly. And this poem has to do with, with suffering, and how much suffering occurs for the believer. And this poem is, not you might know it, you might not know it. It's entitled, Hast Thou No Scar? And this is what it says. Hast thou no scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascended star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers spent, Leaned me against the tree to die and rent, By ravening beasts that compassed me I swooned, Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, And pierced are the feet that follow me, But thine are whole. Can he have followed far, Who has no wound, nor scar? And that's a question worth pondering for us as believers. Can he have followed far who has no wound nor scar? So we've answered our three questions and I think you're starting to see what that means for us, don't you? Now just quickly, time is almost up, I just want to quickly include a part as far as the implications of that on the last generation. You know the last generation that goes through this experience has a very special name in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, they're called the 144,000. Isn't that right? The 144,000. Revelation 14. In Revelation 14, the 144,000 are referred to by a name, and here we will see that they parallel exactly the work that Christ did, particularly the experience that Christ went through. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 4. Revelation 14 and verse 4 says, Speaking of the 144,000, these are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. They are called the first fruits, right? So if you have first fruits, it means you obviously also have. Second second fruits is a very popular answer. It's, it's the wrong answer. You don't have second fruits. There's no second fruits in the Bible. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a common answer. What follows the first fruits is always the harvest. So we're told here that the 144,000 are referred to by that name. Isn't that right? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15 back again there and see how the picture develops in more detail. This is not just, you know, one, this is many angles where you can see the same thing. 1 Corinthians 15, (laughs) and we will look there at verse 20, just quickly. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. It says here, but now is Christ risen from the dead, and become the first fruits of them that? Slept. Slept. So, Christ here is also referred to as the? And is the first fruits of them that? So you see Paul's argument there in the chapter. There is an order here. It's first fruits. And when the first fruits comes about, then there is a, a harvest. Let's just underline this. This is the, this is the title. Okay, and the, and the 144,000 are like Christ. They go through the same experience. They are also called the first fruits. Look at verse 23. Same thought again. Notice the sequence here. Verse 23, same chapter. But every man in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. afterward they that are Christ, when? At his coming. Same thing, right? So that's when the harvest will take place. In other words, that's when all these dead who have died in the faith will be harvested, there are them that slept, at His Coming. coming. But before that takes place, this has to come to maturity. And this can only come to maturity if they go through the experience of suffering on the behalf of this group. And when they go through this intense suffering, and they are mature, then this group can be collected then the harvest can be, can be gathered. You with me? That's the picture that we find. that comes to us also from the Old Testament. Because if you remember in the scriptures in Mark 4, 29, we won't go there, but this is what it says. When the fruit is brought forth, immediately he put it in the sickle, because the harvest is come. When the fruit is brought forth and ready, that means the harvest is come. ready or come. And when this is not ready, this means this cannot be harvested. And this is where we are right now. This is not ready yet. And this is why this harvest is not yet gathered. And this is why Paul says, They, without us, cannot be made perfect. They cannot be harvested without the us, right here. And this is what we're talking Okay, so you're seeing the picture here, from just from a bit of a different angle, from the fr- first fruits and the harvest. Now, of course... When does the harvest take place? At the same coming. You just said, the, you know, the, uh, in, in the parable of the sower, He said, the harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. The reapers are the angels. They are not people. And you remember in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, after the three angels' messages, it talks about seeing uh, one sitting on a cloud, and he has a sharp sickle in his hand, and the angel tells him, thrust in thy sickle and reap, Because the harvest of the earth is ripe. If this is ripe, this means that this has already come to fruition. And only then can they be harvested. So, brothers and sisters, we have a very big responsibility. The harvest is waiting for us. You see, we, this group here, are the argument and the vindication of why God can claim all these people from the grave this is the argument, this is the final argument. That's what vindicates God in doing what He does here. So, <clears throat> there are many other verses. Uh, Romans 11:16 is another one. Here's what it says. If the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. If the first fruit is holy, the lump is holy. In other words, what happens to this group and this this particular group of people vindicates this group of people. What does that mean? You see, many people died in the faith, in this group, who perhaps might not have known everything, who might not have understood everything, who might not even have perfected Christian character. Isn't that right? How will they be admitted into the kingdom? Satan will say, excuse me, how are you taking this person to the kingdom? You're taking that person to the kingdom? What does Christ point to? 144,000 He's the answer. Why is that? Because when they come to fruition, if they are holy, that means everyone else is holy. Why? Because if these people were placed under the same circumstances, they would produce the same fruit. Because if one part of the body is honored, the rest of the body is honored. So they go through this experience on the behalf of everyone else. Now, this is the responsibility on our Shoulders Now I want to tell you something. We are told to strive to be among the. How do you read? The, you all know that? And we all strive. You know why we should strive? This is a good reason to strive. Amen. You know we think of that about, you know, maybe for, for selfish reasons, usually, oh, I want to be. Front seats in the bus. That's what 144000 are, huh? That's the front row in the bus of salvation. Generally, that's what we think of. They have the honored position. And, uh, you know, maybe what will be closest to the throne, we'll be close to Christ. These are all good reasons. But, brothers and sisters, I want to give you a greater, maybe expand your horizon a little bit. A greater purpose and a greater reason. The whole body is dependent and waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. You know, when we get to heaven, I'm sure you all, you want to go meet your favorite Bible is Isn't that right? You know, the stories of Daniel or Joseph, wherever it might be. And you want to go meet them and you feel like you know them. And you know, sometimes we go places and, and people come and then maybe they watch some of our DVDs and they come and they meet me and they feel like they know me. I don't know them but they feel like they know me and some, some people uh, express that here. And, and it's great, I appreciate that but I don't, I don't really know them. But they feel that they've seen all these things and you know, watch me and they feel they're familiar with me. We feel we're familiar with Abraham and, and Moses and all these people We read their life story. We know all these details and we feel, I know, I'd, I'd recognize them in heaven. Oh, that must be Moses. And we feel like we want to go and talk to them and meet them and and tell them how their example might have inspired us and encouraged us and so on and so forth. That's great and wonderful. But have you ever thought about it the other way around? If maybe Daniel and, and Joshua and Elisha would be longing and waiting to meet the last generation. Why? The last generation that enabled Christ to harvest them. And to maybe come and say thank you. And maybe Daniel will come to you. Because the God promised Daniel, says he shall stand in his lot at the end of days. Isn't that right? And then he can't do that until this happens. This group take, uh, goes through this experience. You know, they might come, Daniel might come to you and say, thank you so much. You know, you finally did it. How long did it take you? And you say, oh, well, uh, 2012 it was, 2012. And he said, what, 2012? You lasted till 2012. It's taking too long, brothers and sisters. We have a great race to run before us. And in this race, we have all these people in the stands, so to speak, looking on. That's the earnest expectation of the whole creature. Everyone is looking on. Now, I know they're dead in the grave. You know what I mean. But there is a longing, earnest desire. These dead people in the grave are represented in Revelation uh, chapter 6, under the fifth seal. They're represented as what? Crying and saying, how long, O Lord, holy and just? How long? Now this, this cry really actually reflects God's attitude. The dead are not, they don't know what's going on. But it's God is longing for all this to be over. He is longing to let Abraham walk the promised land, and Isaac, and Jacob, and all these people that he made promises to that are lying in the grave. And he cannot do that without the first fruits. So there is a great responsibility on our shoulders. Now I don't. I'm not going to go through a Bible study f- to to prove that now. But the name for this group in the book of Revelation is the Great Multitude, right? Revelation chapter seven. You can. That's that's for homework because our time is is gone. Uh, the Great Multitude is that great group of people that cannot be numbered from every nation and kindred and tongue and people that stand finally on the sea of glass and say salvation belongs to God and the Lamb. They can't do that until we go through that experience. That's why the Bible says, they without us cannot be made? Perfect. Perfect. So they're waiting for you, brothers and sisters. Amen. They're waiting for me. And so I want to leave that thought with you as a motivation. Let's go to, uh, let's go to our last verse. Isaiah chapter 51. And just a closing thought here. Isaiah chapter 51. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 51. Isaiah chapter 51, verses 22 and 23. Isaiah 51, 22 and 23. The Bible here says, Thus saith the Lord, sorry, thus saith thy Lord, the Lord, and thy God, that pleadeth the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken out of thine hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury, thou shalt no more drink it again. Praise God. You know what that's talking about? That's talking about this cup here. God is closely watching this experience. And there will come a point when in the drinking of this cup of suffering, God will say, enough. Mission accomplished. No more. And he takes that cup out of our hands. And particularly it says here, he takes the dregs of the cup. Isn't that right? You know what the dregs of the cup are? That's the part that Jesus drank that we don't have to drink. You know what that is? Death. His suffering led ultimately to his death. The suffering of God's people in the last days will be intense. It will be severe. But before death comes, God says, okay, that's enough. They will not die. So only Christ goes through that experience. And then God takes that. And the beautiful thing about it here, it says, you shall no more Drink of that cup ever again. Isn't that right? So that needed experience is not something that God inflicts upon his people for any other purpose than to bring them to the level where they are prepared to face the, the greatest argument of Satan. This whole claim is all wrong. And, this, and so, in other words, God is very, very closely watching the furnace. And he will not allow any extra flame than what is needed. And when it's mission accomplished, he'll say, okay, that's enough. And that is finished. And then verse 23. But I will put it into the hand of them that afflict thee, which have said to thy soul, bow down, that we may go over. And thou hast laid thy body as the ground and as the street to them that went over. God takes the cup and he gives it to the? He gives it to the wicked. So don't look with fear and trembling on the time of trouble. God can see what's going to come and God has promised that He will intervene. He will only put us through that which we actually need. We don't go through that time alone, you know, destitute of any help. Christ is there with us to sustain us. We only go through that time by looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I just wanted to share with you A little bit of the joy that was set before him. So at that time when we're up in the cave somewhere, you know, you can look at me and say, hey, Daniel. Daniel will be out of his grave when we go through this experience. And that will encourage us. Or we're down in the valley somewhere surrounded by, I don't know what troops going to kill you. You know, brothers and sisters, these things will happen. We need something to encourage our faith. That's what encouraged the faith of Christ in the garden. It was the joy that was set before him. One final illustration. And I think this illustration brings it all together very well. You know, recently the Olympics were on in London and uh, when I used to like to watch that stuff, there was one particular race I used to really enjoy watching. And that's the relay race. You know the relay race where they have a team usually of four and they have to run, not all at once, but they have to carry a baton, right? And the idea is that they would one start and they would pass the baton on and, and so on until they get to the end. And, uh, of course, the 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 object is you need to get to the end with the baton. If you drop it along the way and you get to the end, that's no good, right? Uh, you don't win. You have to get to the end with the baton. So, of course, the the runners, they develop the skill of uh, running and at the same time being able to exchange the thing. And they grab it so they don't drop it and they still keep running and, and beat the team. Now, interestingly enough, there are some principles in this particular race that have everything to do with what we're talking about. Paul says that we are to run the race that is set before us with endurance. And we are really in a relay race. We're the last runners. And the baton we're carrying is the baton of truth. That's been entrusted to us. In all these previous runners, uh, Daniel ran his shift and he passed on the baton. And Elisha ran his shift and passed on the baton. And David and all these great men of God, they ran their little shift and they passed it on. And you know, it's interesting that... As the race progresses, the climax of the race is on the very last runner. Isn't that right? Because you can't really guess the outcome of the race until the very end because some runners might run ahead of others, but then the, in the next part, they might make it up, and then it kind of keeps changing who's first until you get to the very last end of the race. And, you know, I picture it as the last part of the race. It's like when everyone in the stands is just on, their, on the edges of their seat or they're all... Standing up. Here's the race about to finish. And that's the picture we really get when it says the earnest expectation of the whole creature, of all the creation is waiting longingly for the manifestation of the sons of God. The whole universe is watching the last runners, you and me. And you know the sad, the sad fact of the matter is the last runners are asleep and they've dropped the baton. They don't know where it is. And there's all kinds of confusion on the last shift. Isn't that right? And you know, we drop the baton, and we go to pick it up, and there's like a hundred other ones that look like it on the floor. And then you pick this one up, and this, this group says, that's a heresy, brother. You pick that one up, you say, that's an apostasy. Oh, this is this one, and this is that one. You need to make sure you pick the right one up. You see, what Satan has done is he is trying to cause us not to finish the race. That's what's happening, isn't that right? And I just find it amazing that that race illustrates that whole thing very, very well. And you can just imagine the disappointment. If that happens in a race, you know, all the runners that ran well in the beginning, and then the last one, you know, starts, fumbles with the thing, and he drops it and, and runs off track, and they're all like, oh, what are you doing? We ran so well, and we were relying on you, and you go and do that. That's what's happening with us, isn't it? And the beautiful thing about the race also is this. The race is not finished until the last runner crosses the line with the bat. It doesn't matter how well the first runner may have run. It doesn't matter how poorly they may have run. The race is only finished for them when the last runner runs. And you know, they only win as a team. And that's why it's a beautiful picture because, you know, these, these people, these faithful people of the ages, they've run their shift, but they still have not won the race yet. They haven't fin- The race is not finished. Why? Because the last runners are still needing to cross the, the line. That's the last runner. So I want us to think of ourselves as the last runners in this race. And now there's another interesting aspect in the race. You know there's a strategy. There is a strategy as how the, the trainers or the, the people who organize, you know, the, the runners, they, they put, usually they put the best runners at the beginning and at the end. And they're not as good runners, they're in the middle part. Because usually it's, it's in four sections, right? And the reason for that, usually the best runner is the one at the very end. The reason for this is in case, you know, some of the first runners maybe don't do as well or or they mess up. The last runner can make up for their failures. You know, if he lags behind a little bit and the others overtake. If the last runner is really good, he can take that thing and really go for it. And he can make up for the failures or the, the lagging of the other runner. We are the last runners, brothers and sisters. There's a lot of weight and responsibility on our shoulders. So I just want to admonish you and encourage you, as Paul said, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. We have this coming before us, but don't keep your eyes on this. Keep your eyes on on Jesus. That's my prayer. That's my challenge to you today. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.